Good morning. It's so good to see you here at the North Campus today. It's my joy to uh, spend some time with you to teach the Word of God. So thankful for Judd and for Johan as they've set the table so well for our time in the Word. I am a little jealous of Judd. It's clear we have different uh, barbers, and so I don't think that's quite fair. Um, but I am thankful for their work up here uh, to begin our worship service. And I'm very grateful to Dr. Graham and to Pastor Connor uh, for this opportunity to teach the Word. I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke 15. Uh, that's where we're going to be today as we open up to study God's Word. Excited to be in this story, a very familiar story for some of us. If you're not familiar with this story, I'm actually happy about that because uh, I get to tell it to you. Uh, but we're going to be in chapter 15 because we're going to continue our uh, series here, Tell Me the Story of Jesus. This summer, we've been teaching the parables of Jesus because they're these key moments, these short stories that are vehicles for truth for God to invoke in us, in Jesus' teaching, these key responses. And that's certainly what we're going to see this morning. And so we're going to begin in verse 1 and 2. I'll read those verses for us. It's going to set the context for us and help us to see who Jesus is teaching. In verse 1, it reads this way. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, that's to Jesus. And the scribes and the Pharisees grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Two groups of people gathered to hear Jesus. Group one, these are the tax collectors and the sinners. The tax collectors ostracized and criticized by the religious elite and by the masses because they had abandoned their country and abandoned their people and they were collecting taxes for the Roman Empire. The sinners, these were those that lived in blatant contradiction to God's law. They were the thieves, the murderers, and the prostitutes. Those individuals that didn't keep the strict customs of the Pharisees and the religious elite. But for the tax collectors and sinners, we oftentimes find them with Jesus. And it's because Jesus' message connected with them in a unique and rare way. It was as if Jesus was speaking just to them, calling them out of the shadows and calling them to the Father. And we'll see this again today. Group two, they were there to criticize. These are the scribes and the Pharisees, the relentless enemies of Jesus, these two typically lumped together made up the religious elite. The word Pharisee means to be separated from, and that's exactly how they viewed themselves, separated from sin and separated from the sinners, separated from the prostitutes, separated from the sinners. Now, this group of individuals, they firmly believed that their merit with God was based on their rule following, that if they followed enough rules and tried hard enough, their personal righteousness would endear them to God. It wasn't relationship. It wasn't love. It was rule following. It was law. And that's how they related to God. This group of individuals could never get over the fact that Jesus would spend time with sinners. They didn't, in fact, have a coffee break with them or share a meal with them. Because if he really was the man of God that he claimed to be, the holy man that everyone viewed him as, then he certainly wouldn't be hanging out with the sinner. But Jesus is Meeting with sinners, his teaching of sinners, his coffee breaks with sinners weren't about complicity. No, it was to show us the heart of the Father, that the Father is out to seek and to save the lost. Two groups of people, they come together here and Jesus tells them a parable. 
The parable consists of three stories, all of them about lostness. A man has a hundred sheep and he's lost one. A woman has ten coins and she's lost one. And a man has two boys and he's lost them both. Hence the title of our message this morning, The Lost Boys. Now there's a lesson that's magnified here in each story because the shepherd finds the one missing sheep and the woman finds the one missing coin. And in both cases, there is great rejoicing. They, in fact, they schedule a party, invite their neighbors, and celebrate the fact that the lost is now found. Now, I am notorious for losing my keys. We have a key bowl in our house. I know where the key bowl is in our house. But when I walk in the door, something breaks in my brain. I walk in and drop my keys somewhere in the house. And so when it's time for me to leave again, and typically I'm running a little bit late, this is kind of how it goes. Everybody stop. Help me find my keys. I don't know where I last saw my wallet. Now, my wife and my girls are really good about helping me find it right quick. I exit the door, but here's a funny thing. We never have a party. We never celebrate the fact that I've lost and found my keys and wallet. But that's the point of the story, I think. It's meant to jar us just a little bit because it's outside the norm. The man throws a party for a lost sheep. The woman throws a party for a lost coin. But yes, They do because it reveals the heart of the Father, that the Father is all about finding lost things. And when lost things are lost and found, there's tremendous joy in heaven. In fact, that's what it says in verse 7 and in verse 10. It says, there's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and turns back to God. In these first two stories, Jesus is saying to the scribes and Pharisees, listen, you're far from God. You don't understand the heart of God. You don't know who God really is because you're missing the point of him sending me. And that is to seek and to save the lost. It's all about repentance. And that's the word of focus in this third story in the parable. Sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son. But as we'll see here in just a moment, there's so much more than just a singular prodigal. This third section makes up the main section of the parable. And so we're going to look down at verse 11, and I'm going to read down through verse 13 as we start to dive in and unpack what God is doing. It says this, and he said, this is Jesus speaking, and he said there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. This is what we see immediately out of the gate, is rebellion. This classifies what the younger son is doing. He's rebelling against the father. The younger son is oftentimes called the prodigal Though this word is not inspired, it does describe well the actions and attitudes of the younger son. Perhaps that word sends you to the dictionary app on your phone, but let me help you. It simply means spendthrift. It means someone who's going to recklessly and wastefully, senselessly, and extravagantly, they're self-indulgent. They waste everything. Their money, their relationships, their gifts, their talent. The prodigal says to the father, give me what belongs to me. Now, this is an outrageous statement. This kind of attitude wasn't 
completely absent from the ancient Near East, but it could not have been more rare. The scribes and Pharisees would have responded in this second. They would have dropped their jaws, their mouths left agape. One of them would have likely said, wait, what? He said, what? I cannot believe that the younger son would take this action against the father. And why? Because it reveals that the younger son has no love for the father, only contempt. It's a statement of hatred. In fact, the younger son is saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want to be free from you, out from underneath your roof. You're in my way. You're holding me back. Let me go and do what I want to do. Give me what's mine. Scandalous, rebellious, and sinful. Now, likely the scribes and Pharisees in this moment were waiting for Jesus to continue the story and say something like, and he slapped him and disowned him and scheduled his funeral. Because that's exactly what the customs of the Jews would have allowed for. For this insolent request, the father had every right to schedule the funeral for this son and declare the boy dead. And this is why I think in verse 24, the text says, the father speaking, my son was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he is found. Jesus could not have portrayed a higher level of dishonor and rebellion and shame. And what does the father do? The text tells us, we read it just a moment ago, he divided his property between them. The word translated here, property, is the word bios in the original language, which is typically translated life. He divided his life between his sons. This is shocking stuff. Again, an audible gasp would have come up from the crowd. This is not what the boy deserves. This boy deserves death. He deserves to be kicked out. He deserves to be disowned and removed from the family. But striking here is the father does not give the boy what he deserves. He gives the boy what he desires. Now, I don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but friends, this is so similar to the book of Romans chapter 1 where God the Father says he hands the sinner over to his desires doesn't give us what we deserve, but says, if you want sin, here you go. You want to run away, there you go. You want rebellion, go on and go for it. I'm not going to stand in your way. The Father, in the agony of rejected love, lets the sinner go. Bible teacher John MacArthur says it this way, the sinner has no relationship to God whatsoever doesn't love God, doesn't care about God, wants nothing to do with God, nothing to do with the family of God, wants nothing to do with the future of the family of God, wants no accountability to God, wants no interest in God, doesn't want to answer to God, doesn't want to submit to God, doesn't want any relationship at all. In fact, has none. And in the agony of rejected love, he lets the sinner go. Now, for some of you in the room, this is your story. Whether past or present, you are or were a prodigal, running as far away from God as you possibly could in your rebellion. And God, in the agony of rejected love, bears your rejection, bears your rebellion, and says, you can have 
what you desire. Verse 13 says he gathered everything up. This is a premeditated action. He has no intention of showing back up for Father's Day or coming for a short visit at Christmas. He doesn't leave his room set up so he could slide in and come and say hi to mom and dad. No, it says he packs everything up so that he can depart. He has no intention of ever returning. His rebellion is now complete. I think it's interesting here that he departs to a far country. The scribes and Pharisees, it would have made them squirm a little bit. It was like, you want to leave Israel? You want to leave home? You want to, you want to get out of here? Certainly not. But there in lies the disaster to his plan. He goes and gets exactly what he desires and he squanders his life, squanders his property on reckless living. The word squander here means to scatter. He scattered his life. Really, he scattered the father's life all around. The older brother would later criticize the younger son and say that he scattered his life and squandered his life with prostitutes. Here, the word reckless living, sometimes translated loose living, means madness that knows no bounds. He wants to experience whatever he wants to experience with whomever he wants to experience it with as many times as he wants to experience it. Hedonism and pleasure and drunkenness and all the rest in a far and distant land. But eventually, the money runs out. And to add insult to injury, the text tells us that there was a famine in this land, a severe famine in this land. Friends, here's the truth. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin promises joy and brings pain. It promises happiness and brings shame. Sin promises life and brings death. It promises freedom and brings bondage. Sin promises heaven and brings the pigsty. It's always, always, always a lie. Now, the younger son responds to this. He's not quite ready to go home to see dad, and so he decides, I'm going to get a job. The text tells us he hired himself out to a uh, citizen of a far country. He wasn't hired on, mind you. He hired himself. In fact, the literal translation says he attached himself to someone. I want you to think of getting off a bus, perhaps in a third world country, and a beggar comes and attaches himself to you to where you just can't quite shake him. So this guy, in order to shake the younger son, says, hey, I need to get rid of you. You don't belong. I don't want you here. So go to the pigsty and feed my pigs. Again, the son gets exactly what he wants, exactly what sin produces. He's high on the hog for a season, and now he's with the pigs. Even trying to put, pull himself up by his own bootstraps, he lands further down in a pit. The scribes and the Pharisees at this point are sick to their stomachs. They can barely endure the imagery that Jesus is using. The tax collectors and the sinners, they're squirming in their seats. They're going, man, this kid has it bad. I cannot believe this. Will he ever be able to come back from this? And that's the lesson. There's no hope in rebellion. The rebellion of the sinner only leads to the pigs, isolated, alone, reeking, and wrecked. 
Now, one clarification here that I think is really important, because a simple reading of the text might suggest to you that if you're not isolated alone and in the pigsty, that you don't, in fact, live in a pigsty. But don't let your $500,000 pigsty convince you you're not living in a pigsty. Because prodigals can be down and out, and they can be up and out. The commonality, they're out. They're in rebellion to the father. Now, in response to all of this, we see the younger son take steps, and steps so important in the direction of the father. I want to point these out to you. This is in verses 17 through 20. Step one is he came to himself. That's what the text says. He came to himself. He realized the disaster of his rebellion. It's almost as if a light switch came on in his head and he said, wait, what am I doing? I have got to get myself out of here. Which leads to step two where he says, I will arise and I will go to my father. Now notice the direction that the younger son has walked. Initially in verse 13, he walks away from the father. And now in verse 20, we're told he's going to move toward the father. In essence, the younger son is abandoning his premeditated rebellion. He's disavowing sinful relationships. He's deserting the pigsty. He's returning to the father. No no sham, no hypocrisy, no fake. It's time that he takes that move to the father. And he even puts together what he's going to say. Have you ever rehearsed something before you showed up to a meeting? I know this is what I'm going to say. So he rehearses it before he sees the Father. He says, I know what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, I sinned against heaven and before you, Father. Just make me a servant. I know I don't deserve anything from you. What is this? But this is confession. He's feeling guilt. He's saying, I did the thing. I admit it. I rebelled. I went far away. Now, if you're like me, I don't like to admit that I'm wrong. In fact, psychologists tell us all the time that none of us like to admit that we're wrong. Those words, I'm sorry, are difficult for us to form in our mouths. And why? It's because it makes us vulnerable. The son was now vulnerable. And what if the father responded and said, you're right. You're a screw-up. You're an embarrassment. You stink like the pigs. You're dead to me. Get out. But the prodigal was willing to take the risk. And why? I believe because he knew the love of the Father. He'd already experienced it in some way. He remembered the love of the Father, the deep, vast love of the Father, and said, I will return to my Father. So verse 20, we see the action where he got up and he went to the Father. Friends, what is this but repentance? It's exactly what repentance is. Repentance includes several key responses to sin. The first of it is conviction. This is where we feel guilt. This is where we say, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've rebelled against God. And therefore, we say, I've got to do something. Step two is sorrow. This is when sorrow takes guilt and it turns it into, I'm sorry. Not only do I realize that I did something, but now I am sorry for the something. The third response is hatred of sin. Because when we truly understand what sin is and what sin produces and all of the outcome of sin, we hate sin because sin produces more sin and sin produces wickedness and brokenness and all of these things. Ultimately, sin produces death and I have to get away from sin. I hate my sin. 
But listen, friends, repentance is not just conviction. You can be convicted and never respond. Repentance is not just sorrow because you can say, I'm sorry, but there's not ever any change. And repentance is not just hatred of sin because I'm sure the prodigal hated some of the things that he was doing when he was doing them. And it's certainly not just saying, you know what, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to be better, I promise. People do that throughout their lives all the time. Where they say things like, I'll never drink again, I'll, I'll never look at porn again, I'll never burst into that fit of rage again, I'm, I'm going to leave the pigsty, I will go home. But perhaps you've heard it said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. No, repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. I changed my mind and therefore I'm going to respond differently to God. The Apostle Paul in Acts 26.20 says, I preached that they should turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. To repent and turn to God. That's what Paul said. That's a change of mind. And then to perform deeds in keeping with repentance, that's the change of action. Genuine repentance is always evidenced by a change of behavior. In my studies this week, I came across a message and the preacher simply said, look, listen, the younger son, the prodigal, wasn't repentant, he was only hungry. That misses completely the point of Jesus' parable because it's clear to us that the younger son had changed his mind on his sin. The younger son had changed his mind on his location. The younger son had changed his mind on his rebellion. How do we know? Because verse 20 tells us he got up and he went to the father. Our change of mind is evidenced by putting one foot in front of the other and moving toward God. Now there at the end of verse 20, we see how the father responds Adjacent to the son's repentance, we see these different verbs. The first one is the father saw him. Now this is a word for anticipation. I imagine that the father each day would rise early. He'd go and grab his cup of coffee and sit on the front porch just waiting and anticipating and yearning for the younger son to come home. The dust would kick up on the road and he would look down and say, maybe it's him. Perhaps it's today. Perhaps he's coming home. Friends, don't miss the anticipation. And I believe this is the posture of heaven this morning. That God is seated on the front porch of heaven just waiting and anticipating and yearning for you to come home to him. It says when he was a long ways off, he saw him and then next he ran to him. Now this is extraordinarily undignified. A father of this stature would never be found running this is why I don't run, by the way. It's extraordinarily undignified. You won't find me doing this activity. But the father, this is no old man shuffle. He sprints down the road to the son. He can't get there fast enough. And when he gets there, he embraces him. This is a hug that says, you were lost once, but I'm never letting you go again. It's a grabbing, swallowing, enveloping hug. And it comes, it says, with kisses. 
Literally, it says the father wrapped his arm around him and kissed him all over. It's like when my kids run to me uh, as I come from the airport out of the international terminal and they wrap their arms around me and knock me over. This is what the father's done. I want you to liken this a bit to a dog. Now go with me on this. Those of you who have a dog, you know what I'm talking about. You can be gone two seconds, you can be gone two minutes, two hours, two days, and when you get home, is your dog happy to see you? You bet he is. He's going to jump up on you, he's going to kiss you all over, it's like he's never seen you before, he's so excited. For those of you that have cats, completely different story. (laughs) You can be gone for two seconds, your cat's going to hold it against you for two years. He could not wait to get there. The most important verb in this section is the father felt compassion. He was filled with it. Compassion might be translated sympathetic pity. He saw the result of his son's rebellion and he looked on him with mercy. This is an act of acceptance in the same way that God looks on your act of rebellion with mercy. And the father doesn't give the son what he deserves. Each of these verbs point to a singular concept in Scripture, and it's the concept of reconciliation. The father is reconciling his relationship to the son. Let's look down at verse 21. Let me read down through verse 24. It says this, And the father said uh, to him, or rather the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is now alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Coupled with reconciliation is restoration, the restoration of the son. I think verse 21 is nestled there in the story to remind us that the father's reconciliation and restoration of the son is running parallel to the son's repentance. A two-way street, all moving in the same direction, the father working, the son repenting. And I want you to notice the first word of verse 22, but even as the son is confessing, the father says, but... Such an important word in Scripture, so strategically placed in so many places, such as Romans 6.23, where it tells us the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or Romans 5.8, but God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 says some not great things about us. He says that we were dead in our trespasses. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were sons of disobedience, carrying out the passions of our flesh, squandering what the Father has given to us in a far and distant land. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great, deep, and vast love in which he loved us, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. There's other great imagery here in the text. First of all, the Father says, bring a new robe. 
The father, the father is saying, I want you to take off the sin-stained clothes. I want you to take off the pig, stinky clothes. And I want you to put on this brand new robe. What is this meant to symbolize? But a new identity. The old identity of sinner is gone. The new identity of the father has been assumed and the son is being restored in the family. The second act of restoration is a ring. It says, bring a ring and put it on his finger. This is meant to represent authority. That the son is now again an heir in the family. He's not a distant one, not in a far and far away land, not rebellious any longer, but he is my son. And then new shoes. But not just shoes, but sandals. No servant or slave would wear shoes in the father's estate. The father is saying, you're not coming back as a servant. You're coming back as my son. Because sons wear sandals. All of these expressions of the restoring love of God. And they began to celebrate. Now remember, there's joy There's joy in the house of God. When one sinner repents, we see joy and celebration, killing the fatted calf, which would feed over 200 people. Who's being invited to this great party? Well, it's the entire town. Everyone who who had heard that the son was dead and disowned and disinherited. Let's have a party and let's celebrate because my son has returned. And at this point in the story, I think the tax collectors, tax collectors and sinners are sitting in front of Jesus, listening intently to the story, beaming because they heard what they longed to hear, that God would receive repentant sinners. One of them cried out, I love this story. Another weeping with joy said, praise God. Another bounds up from his seat, takes off running in the the direction of the village, and he calls back, I have to go tell Samuel about this great news. But the tax, rather the scribes and the Pharisees, they grumble, they murmur, they complain, and they criticize. One of them pipes up and says, pathetic. Another one interjects, I hate this story. And still another not speaking under his breath, but loudly, you all wish sinners belong in hell. Their attitude epitomizes the word for the final section of the parable, rejection. Remember, the man had two sons. Let's talk about the older one. The text tells us, verse 25 and following, that he hears the party, he comes in, loud music, dancing, he asks the servant, what's going on? I didn't get an invitation. What is my father doing now? And the servant says, hey, it's a good thing. Your brother is home. Your dad has killed the fatted calf. He's invited the whole village. He's throwing a party. Your brother is back safe and sound. His response, not joy, but intense anger. And he refuses to go into the party. The irony here, folks, is the father leaves the party, exits the celebration, to go and find the older son and implores him and begs him, won't you come in? The older boy is as lost as the younger one was. The younger was lost in a far and distant land. The older one is lost here at home. 
And I hope you're making the connections. That God seeks the rebellious and the religious rule followers. He seeks the depraved and the self-righteous. Those that view themselves as a disappointment and those that when they look in the mirror only see perfection. Check and see what the older son says. He says, all these years I've slaved for you. And never once have I done something that you haven't told me to do. And all that time you gave me not even one goat to celebrate with my friends. And yet this son of yours, he comes back, who has squandered and scattered and devoured your property with prostitutes. And you celebrate? The older brother clearly is devoid of relationship with the father. Instead, he lives the life of a slave, not love. He despises the father. The drudgery of obedience has finally began to kill him and knock him over. He wants a party, but he believes he's earned it. Notice me, Dad. I've been here. Notice me, Dad. I've I've followed the rules. Notice me, Dad. I never left you not a day. I've earned my party. Give me what I deserve. He has contempt, the same contempt of the younger son. I'd like to ask you an important question this morning. For some of you, as I was describing the prodigal, you said in your heart of hearts, that's me. Others in the room, you said, I would never. For those that said, that's me, you also said, God owes me nothing. For those that said, I would never, whether you want to admit it or not, feel that God owes you something. I've slaved. I've followed the rules. Now give me what I deserve. Sometimes it's subtle. Like, hey, God, I did my quiet time. Now give me a good day. It's like a child who first begins to color within the lines and they look up at mom and say, mom, tell me I did a good job. But oftentimes it's far more dark. God, I followed your rules so you love me, right? I tried really hard. I gave some money. I I came to church. I didn't sleep around. I take my kids to Christian school. I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I don't speed. I, I paid my taxes. That means you love me, right? Maybe I'll do some more. Try a little bit harder. So I'll, uh, okay, I know what I'll do. I'll volunteer. I'll, I'll bake those cookies. I'll show up when no one else will. But wait, life is, life's really hard. My life doesn't have any joy and my marriage is struggling. My kids are disobedient. Maybe I know I just need to do more stuff. Again, I'll try harder. I'll be better. I'll serve more. And God, you love me, Right? You'll bless me, right? At the same time, you see people with tremendous joy. Their life is difficult too, don't get me wrong, but in the difficulty, they respond with joy. Their marriage doesn't seem to be falling apart. Their kids seem to be put together, and, and yet you, you, you follow the rules better than them, and you, you show up more than them, and you, you're more religious than them. In all of this, you start to spurn and despise God. God, I've done everything, and you've given me nothing. Why don't you love me? God, you owe me. Friend, do you honestly think that God owes you something? 
Because the truth of the matter is, if God gave us what we deserved, he would give us banishment to hell for eternity. The younger son didn't deserve a party. The party was the father's grace gift. It was the joy of the father to celebrate the homecoming of his son. His son was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now is found. The older son didn't go into the party. He wouldn't leave his angry position of self-righteousness. He turned his back and walked away. In irony, he took the same steps his younger brother took not many days before. And this is often the response of older brother types. How do I know? Because I used to be one. We sit in churches all over the world and we miss God, we miss Jesus, we miss grace, we miss mercy, all the while thinking that God owes us something because we're trying hard to be better. That's not repentance. That's not relationship. That's being a slave. As we wrap this message today, I'd like to close by telling you the story of the third son. And it's the son telling the story. Jesus the Son of God, who Luke 19.10 says came to seek and save those who were lost. Jesus came for every lost son and every lost daughter. He came for the rebellious and he came for the religious. He came for the self-indulgent and he came for the self-righteous. Jesus came for you and he came for me. Luke 9.51 says of Jesus that he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. Why is this important? Because Jesus was on a God-sent mission to redeem, to save, to seek the lost. He was determined to go to Jerusalem, to die on a cross, to endure the cross with joy, the writer of Hebrews says. What joy? The joy of finding you. Scripture tells us that God made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. You might be surprised to know that the response of the self-righteous, or excuse me, of the rebellious prodigal and the self-righteous Pharisee is the same. And it's one of repentance. To come to ourselves, to change our mind, to change our action, to get up and go to the Father. I'm leaving rebellion. I'm leaving the pigsty. I'm leaving the distant land and I'm returning home. I'm going to the Father. I'm leaving my self-righteousness. I'm leaving my rule book. I'm leaving my discontent. I'm returning home and I'm going to the Father. Friend, if you've never made that decision to get up and go to Jesus, abandon your way and go God's way. I know the love of the Father. And he's ready to receive you. The deep, vast, magnificent love of the Father. I'm going to ask that every head be bowed and every eye closed. And I want everyone just to ponder for a moment. Am I the prodigal? Or am I the self-righteous son? For each moment here, just to remind you that Jesus came for you. Believers are praying throughout the room and I believe there's someone here that this message was geared toward that God is pulling on your heart of hearts saying it's time to get up. It's time to abandon your way and it's time to go 
God's way. If you're making that decision this morning, the decision is simple. The scripture tells us whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's every rebellious son and every self-righteous daughter. Will you come and go to Jesus? Simply cry out and say, Jesus, save me. I can't go on without you. I need you to usher me to the Father. I need you to save me from my sin. I need the grace gift and the mercy gift of God. He's ready to receive you. Still others in the room, you've been dipping your toe in the ministry of Prestonwood for a while, and it's time you planted your flag at Prestonwood and became a member of our church. Don't be distant anymore, but come and say, let's do ministry together to reach our city and to minister to the lost, the hurting in our area. Come and join Prestonwood. Still others, you've made that decision to follow Jesus, but you've never been biblically baptized. That is to give your public testimony of a changed life in the waters of baptism. That's an act of repentance. That's an act of moving to the Father to humble yourself and do what he asked you to do, that first step of obedience, to be baptized as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever your decision this morning, I'm gonna pray, we're gonna stand, and it's gonna be a moment of decision. Come forward and tell one of our ministers today the decision that you're taking and abandon your way and go God's way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time of decision. Now do what you do. Call the dark into the light. Redeem what is lost. Call them to yourselves in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.